Right, right. So here's an interesting question. Was there revelation in the Garden of Eden? talk about revelation it's a good thing you said depends on your definition because um, generally speaking when we talk about um, revelation we talk about two different types two different ways that God has spoken and um, one of the interesting things about doing a systematic theology that's what we're doing in this class is the question always comes up where do you start do you start with the doctrine of God okay let's start with God how do we know about God? Well, because the Bible tells us. Well, what's the Bible? Well, the Bible is the word of God. So should we start with the Bible because that's where we learn about God? Or do you start with God? Because so it kind of goes into this, this tumble. So I just figured we'll start with God and we'll get to the Bible. But the first thing I want to talk about was, was uh, general revelation. Well, first of all, let's get our, our statement of faith up here. This is specifically about special revelation about the Bible. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in its original writings. It's the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all it promises. I think that's a really great statement about what the Bible is. Um, but what we talk about general revelation, what we're talking about there is just what can you know about God just from looking around? So a couple of places you go for this is Romans 1.20. His invisible attributes, you can see his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. They've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. So was there revelation in the garden? Yes, there was. Um, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the thing is, uh, one of the questions comes up, so you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. What about the poor, innocent native who lives on a deserted island and who never hears the gospel? Are they just damned because they don't believe in Jesus? No, they're damned because they don't believe in God, because they are without excuse. Even on that deserted island, there's enough revelation of God for them to say, this is who he is. But because of the fall, they won't. So that's, that's the idea of general revelation is he has revealed himself and how he's created things. The heavens uh, declare the glory of God. So that, that, that uh, innocent native, first of all, there's no innocent native. <laughs> all have fallen uh, short of the glory of God. Um, when that innocent native looks up at the night sky, that night sky is screaming at him the glory of God. And, and that's what the heavens are supposed to do. So I love it when atheists talk about, well, we don't really feel emotion like love or awe or inspiration or anything like that. It's just a, a conditioned reaction to something. It's the way our body reacts. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, so why is it the most common thing in the universe is the night sky? Happens every day. 
Why is it every time I look up at the night sky, I go, wow. <laughs> That's not a conditioned response. The response to that should be, so what? It's not unusual. It's common. Um, a beautiful sunrise. If it's just a chemical reaction in my body that's, that's reacting to this, it's saying that's a pleasant stimulus, it shouldn't react to a beautiful sunrise because it happens not all the time, but quite often. It's not as rare as it should be. So this is what we mean when we say the heavens declare the glory of God. It's beautiful. <laughs> the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. The, the coming and going of the day pours out speech. It speaks, and night reveals knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. In other words, you can't miss it. <laughs> it's, it's speaking everywhere. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So in a broadest sense, God reveals things about himself in creation. He reveals certain things about who he is. It's not the full, or full revelation of who he is. Um, you won't get the Trinity by looking at nature. Remember what, Pet, what uh, Donald and Connell said. We're not getting what you're laying down. Can you give us an analogy? And every single analogy he laid out failed. There's nothing in the, in the physical world that will adequately picture the Trinity. So you won't get that kind of resolution, but you do get the idea that there is a God. The other place that you'll see uh, general revelation is in our conscience. The fact that we know something is right or wrong. For the Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. That is, their conscience bears witness. So, how do you know that it's wrong to steal? The Bible tells me so. Excellent. Nothing wrong with that. How does somebody who doesn't have the Bible know it's wrong to steal? Go steal from them. What do they do? They get very indignant. They may steal, but they don't want to be stolen from. It's their conscience that's bothering them. It's telling them this is a wrong thing to do. So that's kind of general revelation. Any thoughts on that? Anything I miss on that? Yeah, it's more than just look up in the night sky and go, wow. It's also the conscience we have, the, the work of the law in our hearts. Uh -huh. A couple of slides ago. Uh, yeah. Where it says, um, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Have they been clearly perceived? They have been. Paul? <laughs> They have been, Lisa, um, except sin stains it and corrupts that. And so um, it doesn't end there. It goes on to say that, that they, though they knew God, they didn't recognize him as God. Because if he's God, then I'm not, and then we have a problem. It just seems that it's not clearly perceived. It's like clearly revealed. Yeah, revealed. But it can't be clearly perceived because um, because we have this filter. Well, you can clearly perceive it and not believe it. So Isaac Asimov, great science fiction writer, uh, hardened atheist, wrote a commentary on the Bible. He didn't believe it, but he could perceive it. He could understand it. He could work with it, but he just said it's not, you know, it's a work of fiction. 
Um, so it's there. I wouldn't get too hung up on being perceived as in interpreted, understood, and, and believed on. It's just you don't have an excuse because you can see it. It's, it's revealed to you. So special revelation is the Bible. And when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the 66 books that we recognize um, as the inspired scripture. And so what do we mean by inspired? Actually, inspired is a bad word for it. Because uh, what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 is all scripture is not inspired, it's expired. It's breathed out. So all scripture is expired by God. But expired, we think, means past its used before date. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. So the Bible, what the Bible says of itself is it's inspired by God, um, breathed out. And the word for breathe is also the word for spirit. So it could be translated spirited out. Um, and that is funny because the word for spirit is breath, both in Greek and Hebrew. It works in both languages, um, which is kind of cool when you think about um, God breathed the breath of life into Adam. He spirited the spirit of spirit into Adam, or spirit of life into Adam. Um, so what we're saying about the scripture being inspired is, is breathed out by God. It is God's very words. And we get that also from 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the uh, the the theories of how this work are are varied. One of them is called the dictation theory. And the idea with the dictation theory is God told the writers exactly what to write. So uh, Peter didn't write First Peter. God came and said, all right, pick up your pen. I'll start writing. That's the dictation theory. Um, that's not a Christian theory. That's the Quran. In the Quran, the, the angel overcame um, Muhammad and forced words out of him. It wasn't, it wasn't as, as delicate, as, as uh, beautiful as our doctrine of inspiration. Another theory is called the accommodation theory. And this says that God is infinite and cannot be explained. The Bible is God's accommodation to our language. In other words, the overall message is his, but the individual words are ours because God's too, too um, infinite, too beyond understanding to be contained in words. Um, again, this is not really a Christian understanding of it, um, although there are Christians who hold to that, uh, that it's not the inspired literal words of the Bible. It's the ideas. And so, you know, we can kind of go with that. Um, I had a teacher in seminary. Um, he taught us Hebrew, intro to Hebrew over a summer um, summer course. And the whole time he was complaining about why Trinity wouldn't hire him. He'd only been brought in to teach, you know, one or two classes, and that was it. And he was really upset about that. And he wrote a book. He, he handed us the intro to Hebrew book that he was working on, and that's what we used. And he was a pretty good teacher. And the last day of class, we're doing something, and he, he's putting a quote up, and he's talking. And he says, well, we don't know that um, Moses ever actually lived, but <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> Jesus seemed to believe he did. Oh, Jesus was just speaking in ways that the people would understand. We don't have any historical evidence that I want. This is why a evangelical seminary will not hire you. <laughs> you don't believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. Well, I believe in the inerrancy, but if Moses didn't live, the Bible's, are not, Bible's not inerrant. 
What I wish I had asked him, I, I didn't think of it until years later, because he said there's no evidence that Moses ever listed. Who was Jesus talking to in the Mount of Transfiguration? Was that a figment of his imagination? Was that just an accommodation? He had a pop, puppet so that you know the, the apostles would see that? So that's an, an accommodation theory. Is uh, Another version of the accommodation theory is the Bible is thoroughly human. It's only written by human authors. It's just God looked around and went, hey, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. And so he said, that, that goes in the Bible. First Peter, that's great. Put that in the Bible. It's not my words, but it's what I'm trying to say. What we mean by inspiration as evangelicals is we believe in what's called the plenary inspiration. Plenary means the fullness. So it's not dictation because dictation would obscure what the original author, Paul or Peter, were intending to say. Um, It was them writing exactly what they intended to say, the way they intended to say it, and at the same time the Holy Spirit is operating in them so that they're saying exactly the words that God wanted them to use. So that's what we mean by the full plenary inspiration of the Bible or the verbal inspiration is we go right down to a word. And so that's why you'll hear me on Sunday sometimes say, well, this word means because it's not, I can't just go, well, that that isn't inspired. But the thought is, is you have to deal with each word. Why is the verb this way? Why is the noun that, that type of noun? So that's the full plenary inspiration of the Bible. It is exactly what God wanted to write and exactly what Peter wanted to say. Sorry, what was the second one? It was the accommodation theory? Accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I just find it so beautiful that that you get the emotion of the authors coming through. Paul could write and go, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I, I, I'm exasperated with you. And it's exactly how Paul, that was actually Paul's emotions. And those words flowing out of his pen were exactly what God wanted him to say. That's just amazing to me. Um, it's, it's a much more beautiful theory than the dictation theory where God is, you know, just going to drop these words on somebody. You know, it's, it's, it's much more nuanced and subtle. So when we talk about the Old Testament, why would we say the Old Yes, sir. Sorry. Uh, didn't at least some of the books of Moses, weren't they dictated? Some of the, some of the, uh, yeah, some parts are dictated. I mean, not, not the entire God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was inspired. He wrote. There were times when God said, go say to these people. And he wrote that down and he, you know, he spoke it to them. So it doesn't exclude dictation. It's just that's not the, the way that the Bible is written. It's only by dictation. So the, New, the Old Testament, why do we think that the Old Testament's inspired? Because it is quoted repeatedly by Jesus and the New Testament authors as authoritative, as the word of God. This is what God said. It's inspired that way. So we don't have really any problems with with, uh, seeing the Old Testament is inspired because our leaders treated it that way. What about the New Testament? How do we get to the New Testament being inspired? How do we know what that is? Well, here's an example. Let me me show you how this is the the scriptures attesting to themselves. So this is 1 Timothy 5.18, talking about why would you pay a minister of the gospel? And he says, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The scriptures say that. Well, that is a quote from Deuteronomy 25. So he quotes Deuteronomy 27, the scriptures, including Deuteronomy. But this is actually Luke 10. So he's quoting Jesus from Luke 10 and saying the scriptures say this. So in other words, Paul has, has 
looked at Luke's gospel and said, this is scripture, this is inspired, and treats it like that, treats it as authoritative. Same thing happens here in 2 Peter. 2 Peter says, as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, and then there's some, some other parts, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Hail and amen, brother. <laughs> Aren't you glad an inspired author, an apostle said? Paul's hard to understand sometimes. <laughs> I'm off the hook which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Paul wrote scriptures and the other scriptures too. Now the other place that, that Peter will use the word scripture to describe something is actually in 1 Peter when he quotes Isaiah. And he says, the scripture says, and he quotes Isaiah. So again, what we've seen in these two different things is the way the New Testament treats it, the, Old, the New Testament authors are on the same par as scripture from the Old Testament. They're seen as equally authoritative. Any any thoughts on that? Is that cool? I think this. I think the the treading the uh, the ox treading thing is really incredible. <laughs> Luke quote or uh, Paul quotes Luke. So yeah. Okay, we'll call that inspired then. Is, yes. Is there also uh, like the tradition of oral history at that point, or have we transitioned to written history? Like, probably both. I mean, there was probably but. The cool thing is there was a bunch of oral history going around. There were books that were not in the Bible. And when you get to the New Testament, the oral history gets written down. So we know it's inspired and it's inerrant. And there's a couple of places. Uh, there's one in Jude that quotes uh, Enoch. That doesn't mean the book of Enoch is inspired, but it means this bit is true. So we get this nice filter saying, here, don't worry about all that other stuff. Here's what's true. Here's the, here's the inspired stuff. So here's the million-dollar question. What is the Bible? What do we need? What is the Bible? Not just, you know, it's God's word. Yeah, okay. But what is, what is it saying? What is it story of? Is it basic instructions before leaving earth? Gary Busey? <laughs> I was like, whoa. No, it's not that. What about life's little handbook? Right? So here you go. Life's instruction manual. Please read carefully. No, it's not that. What about life's owner's manual? You can get a coffee mug with that, a travel mug with life's owner's manual on it. How about uh, a collection of aphorisms? So Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> For you youngins, that's an old Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, he went on to become a senator from um, Minnesota and eventually resigned because he was accused of sexual harassment. So, <laughs> But he's smart enough and he's good enough. And doggone it, people like him. So is this what our Bible is? This is it, the reason I say this is because what you think the Bible is is going to dictate to you how you read the Bible. So if it's life's instruction manual or owner's manual, you're going to go to the Bible and you're going to read and you go, well, what's it telling me to do today? And who's at the center of it? Me. You don't, you don't read an a owner's manual for um, a 74 Buick and expect to go in there and find out how to repair microwave ovens. It's about a 74 Buick. So if the Bible is life's owner's manual, it must be about me. And that will distort, that will, that will shade how you read the scriptures. So anybody got Bibles or Bible apps? Let's, let's read some scriptures. What we're going to do is ask, what does the Bible say about itself? So somebody want to get Luke 24? Yell out if you do so that we can get it. Another one to somebody else. 
Somebody do in Luke 24? Okay, how about John 5? Okay, Kyle, um, uh, Kyle's got it. Um, Acts uh, 26. And Acts 28. Come on, we've got to get on this side. There we go. Thank you. We had to balance it out. Our yin and yang was awful. It was all leaning this way. Okay, so somebody read to me 24, Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, and then skip down to 44. Oh, that was, that was Jimbo. Yeah, I can't wait. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and full of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken to them. Was it not And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay. John 5, 39, and then 46 and 47. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote it. But if you do not believe his writings, how would you believe the Bible? Okay. How about Acts 26, 22, and 23? To this day, I have hope concerning God, so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophet and Moses said from the past. And that Christ must suffer in that. And then 
So this is what we mean by what the, the Bible is about. We don't go to the Bible and look for me. Um, I'm going to find um, Samson's four tips for, for manly living. Or Moses' uh, seven points for being a godly parent. Or Jonah's wonderful tips on reaching your neighbor. You know, I mean, that's, that's not what the Bible's about. It's not about you, but so much of what I hear on Christian radio, that's the preaching that you get is, is here, let me tell you about you from this scripture. And, and you have to be careful with that because it's not that they're, what they're saying is wrong necessarily. It's that's not what the Bible is about. You'll get there. You'll get stuff about you, but that's not its, its primary limit or its primary aim is not to tell you about you. Yeah. Did you have something, Jim? I thought you thought you oh, were. No, I, I, oh, <laughs> I thought you were waving at me. <laughs> so um, when we talk about the what's in the Bible, um, it, it's God's revealed word, but it has its limits. It doesn't reveal everything. Um, so God doesn't tell us everything. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our sons. So in other words, God hasn't told us everything. But what he's told us is for us. It's, it's, it's something that we should pay attention to and use. Um, so there are things about God that he hasn't revealed to, him, to about himself to us. Um, and then um, oh, there was something else I was going to say about this. God has not revealed everything. Oh, so when we talk about the, the doctrine of inerrancy, which we're going to talk about next, um, what we have to keep in mind is what the Bible says, it says inerrantly, but it doesn't say everything. So you're not going to go to the Bible and learn how to drive in uh, the, UK, the UK and how to manage a, a United Kingdom roundabout. That's, that's not the Bible says about that. What it does say, it does say authoritatively. So when we talk about inerrancy, uh, what we mean is the Bible is without error in all it says. There is some debate between the two words infallible and inerrant. And I go with inerrant because only God is infallible. And what that means is, is it means incapable of error or lying. God cannot lie. He cannot be wrong about something. So he is infallible. There is nothing he has ever said or, or understood or believed that was wrong. He has always known everything perfectly, so he's infallible. Human beings, however, can be error-free. We can say things that are true and accurate. I can accurate, if you ask me, how do I feel today, I can tell you that truthfully and accurately. There, but if you ask me about um, the landing gear on a, a Boeing 707, I might give you an answer, but it's probably not right because I don't know much about that. So I can be error-free. I can speak without error, but I can also speak with error. So I'm, I'm capable of error. So that would make me fallible or errant. The place that the two overlap, God speaking and us speaking, is if God is incapable of error, then he can speak error-free. If I'm capable of speaking error-free, I can speak error-free. And so I think the, the best way to say that the Bible is, in, uh, is without error is to say it's inerrant, not that it's infallible. And that's because if we say it's infallible, then that would exclude human authorship because humans by nature are fallible. But the Bible is both divine and human. It's the two together. 
It is, it, I like to say it this way, the Bible is a thoroughly human document. It's written in languages we understand. It's written from human perspectives. It's, it's rooted in human history. It didn't fall out of the sky. People picked up pens and wrote these things. It's a thoroughly human document. And it's thoroughly divine because God spoke. God moved these people to speak that way. God is not telling the whole history of the entire planet. He's telling a very specific slice of history. And so that's God's perspective on history. There's more written by other people, um, but that's it. So we, we bring these two together and we say that the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. It's people writing what they wanted, God saying what he wanted. And so I think it fits best if we say it's inerrant. It does not have any errors. There are, there's, there's no place where it can have errors. So does that mean it's also infallible because it's not fallible? <laughs> yeah, you could say it's infallible because it doesn't have any errors. So you could go that way. But I get twitchy because humans are not infallible. But in the Bible, are they are they fallible? The yeah, Paul Peter was wrong, right? Peter went to uh, Antioch and withdrew, and he got rebuked. So he's fallible; he could be wrong. Yeah, the writing down of it. But Paul was not. If Peter was infallible, he was incapable of error, and he's not. It would be like, it would be like the Pope being able to make infallible statements occasionally. Yes. Yeah, his statement is in, in. It would be determined to be infallible if the cardinal, if the Car College of Cardinal Cardinals decided it was. That cracks me up. The Pope is infallible as long as we say he is. <laughs> Until we say he's not, then he is. Um, so yeah, you could use either one. I'm not going to have a beef if somebody says the Bible is infallible. But I think if we're going to get really technical, remember we talked about could Jesus sin? Well, he didn't. He was sinless. But his humanity could have sinned, but he didn't. So this is the same thing with the Bible. Could, could the human authors have erred? Yes, they could have, but they didn't. And so it's okay. It's, it's, it's there together. So here's another little trick question. And I've heard one of my favorite teachers teach on this, and I really disagreed with him. Let's say that next week somebody finds Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. He mentions it in Colossians. He says, uh, when you get this letter, read it and then send it to Laodicea and read the letter that I sent to them. So Paul wrote two letters, one to Colossae, one to Laodicea. If we found the letter and somehow we're able to verify this is authentic, this is the letter Paul wrote, would we have to include that in our Bible? Should we? Okay. <laughs> I, I would say no, we can't, because the criteria for what made it into the New Testament was it was known to the church, it was widely circulated, and it was useful. So the letter to the Laodiceans apparently wasn't widely known. We don't have any copy. Nobody ever mentions it. So it wasn't circulated by the early church. The early church didn't have access to it. Therefore, it's probably not inspired. It would be great if we had it. I think it would be wonderful. It'd be great to, to read that, but I'm afraid people would start stuffing it in their Bible and going, yep, we got another book. Um, probably wouldn't. It was known by the early church. It was widely circulated. In other words, uh, like Romans was passed all around. 
and um, it was useful. Um, so like the Didache, that's an early, early written document from about the first century. It was widely known. It was circulated quite a bit, but it, everything it said was already in other scriptures that were recognized, so it wasn't included. We'll talk about um, canon in, a, in a, about one more slide. So when we talk about inerrancy, um, when we say that, that the Bible is inerrant, um, there's a very careful way that you have to word this. Uh, the way that the, the, has been, the, the terms that have been used for a long time is that they're without error in their original autographs. And what autographs means is not somebody signed it. In the original document, the paper, that, the papyrus that Paul sat down and wrote to Timothy was inspired. It was inerrant. There was no wrong thing on it. We don't have the original documents. We don't have any of the original documents that Paul wrote or John wrote or any of that. So in the original autographs, we would say they're without error. The copies that have come down might include errors because we've got different different copies of the same scriptures. And so it's not like we just go, you know, this is it. This is the one true final copy. We're trying to get as close as we can to that original autograph. And the way you do it is if you get two ancient documents that are side by side and there's a difference, and this one makes it a little hard to read and this one clear is much more clear, you go with the hard one. Because it's more likely that uh, somebody who's, who's transcribing it would go, well, that doesn't make sense. Let me change that to this. Make, let me make that a little clearer. So you go with the more difficult reading. It's, more, it's less likely somebody's going to write and go, oops, I, uh, I, I left that in there wrong. Well, we'll just leave it. So that's the thought behind it. And so we go back and we're looking for those, audit, for those earlier and earlier documents. We've got some that are really ancient. Donnell and Connell read one to us, that papyrus, remember? You can't read this, right? Um, that's that's a really early one. Yes. So I had a question. So you know how there's different translations of Bible. Mm-hmm. Is that all and So translation is a whole other category. Um, let, let's talk about it because it's a really good question. So the original autograph was inspired and inerrant in exactly what God wanted written down. We don't have those. We have tons of copies. And I don't mean to make it sound like you can't trust your Bible. There are more copies of the scriptures than there is of any ancient document. The, the, there's over like 5,000 quotations from, I think it was Matthew. And we, tr- we trust that. Um, Plato's Republic, I think there's maybe five copies that are ancient, that are older, and we trust that. So, I mean, if you're going to side by side, believe me, the Bible is very trustworthy, what we have. So that's the original languages. That's looking at the Greek and the Hebrew. Now, when you ask about translation, how do you translate that? Because it's not a one-for-one thing. As a matter of fact, this week, um, the sermon is going to use the word uh, gracious or grace, and I looked it up, and it's different in every single translation. <laughs> Why do you do that? Well, because what you, you don't go one-to-one with the language. You, there's, you don't just pick up this word, and it means that and this, and, and that's it. You have to look at the lexical range of the word, how is it being used in the context, and all that stuff. So when it comes to translating the Bible, you sit down, and you, you read the text, and you say, now, what's, what's that saying? How do I express that in English? 
And the, the thing is, this is one of my beefs with the King James only folks, is nobody speaks 1611 anymore. We don't, we don't talk like that, right? These and thous and, you know, pertaineth and, and all that. We don't speak that way. That doesn't mean that's a bad translation. It means that human language has evolved further. And we now need to translate again today. And so that's why in the 1970s it was really bad because they came up with the new international version and the new American standard and the new revised standard. And, well, that's not new forever. <laughs> that's a terrible name because within 20 years we got to retranslate it. And so now they're coming up with the English standard version and the Christian standard version and that kind of stuff because we have to adapt it to the language we speak now. Well, what happened? I'm curious. I know RC is not with us anymore. What happened to his um, they went with the, there was a, one of the earliest English translations of the Bible was not the King James, there was one before it, the Geneva translation, which, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole history going on there. King James didn't like it. And so he said, we're going to do our own. What was that, that wasn't Zwingli, it was, it was the Calvinists. And he didn't like that. So we're going to come up with our authorized version. That's not an authorized version, this is the authorized version. Um, so, yeah, the, even if you do that, you're not going to pick it up and use the old language and the old spelling and the old fonts. Um, in the older, la- older texts, the final S in a word looks like an F without the bar. It's, it's really weird. You're reading it, and all of a sudden you go, Steph. No, stuff. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> because it looks like an F there, but it's not. So we wouldn't pick that up and use that. We would translate that into modern using the, the curly S for uh, all of it. So when you talk about the translation of the Bible, which one's best? Well, you've got to pick up what's expressing it in the way that people would understand it today. Um, and then there's a question of how close is that to what the original translation or the original text said versus how do you say it in modern language? So there's some differences, but um, when we look at the original text, we're looking for those original uh, documents. So there are some disputed verses in our Bibles. There's some verses in there that we're not sure about. First uh, John 5, 7, and the King James says, For there are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So one of the complaints that King James only people have is, you're trying to throw out the doctrine of the Trinity because you're not accepting First John 5, 7 as inspired. It's like, well, we can get there without that. So if that wasn't in the original, I'd rather not rely on that. You know, we're not we're not losing the doctrine of the Trinity because of that. That seems like it could be a scribal insertion because it's talking about the three at that point. And so it's, a scribe could go, oh, let, let me sum that up and put it in there. Um, the next one is really super popular and really troublesome. Uh, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter uh, seven and eight. Um, the, the way if you take that out, Jesus is in the temple. He's arguing with the Pharisees. And then it continues on. If you put that in, it's really abrupt. He's in the temple arguing with the Pharisees, and then everybody went home. And then they catch a woman in adultery, and he, he does the writing in the sand, and then everybody's back in the temple. And it's like, it just doesn't fit. But it's, it's more than just it breaks up the story. The language is different. The use of Greek is different in that section. So some of the theories are that the woman caught in adultery actually is an inspired story, but it's moved from a different piece of scripture. Somebody uh, shuffled the papers when they were transcribing and wound up putting it in the wrong place. And then it just stuck. So we're kind of with it. Um, 
So that one theory is that it's from John, or I mean uh, from Luke somehow got transposed. I'm like, okay, but how did it get taken out of Luke and put into John? So it's, it's troublesome. And then um, there's another one in John, John 5, 4. Uh, there's a man who is uh, blind or is lame, and he's by the pool of Siloam. And uh, Jesus says, Would you, do you want to be healed? And he says, yeah, but I, nobody's here to carry me down when the water is troubled. And so Jesus says, okay, well, I'll just heal you. Well, there's a, an extra verse, 5-4, that says an angel went down and stirred up the water, and that's when people would get healed. So that's probably not in the original. Um, it's not horrible, you know. It, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not part of the original. And then the worst one is the uh, longer ending of Mark, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20. Um, that's almost assuredly not Mark. That looks like it was something tacked on. Um, so when we talk about these disputed verses, uh, I kind of alluded to this on, on John 5, 7, 1 John 5, 7. Do we lose anything by, the, by excluding these disputed texts from our Bible? Is there anything that we don't get? Um, we're still going to get the Trinity. We don't, we don't have as clear a statement as what 5-7 would say, but we still understand the doctrine of the Trinity. The woman caught in adultery. Do we lose anything if that's not in there? Is Jesus suddenly not gracious? Is he not calling out the uh, Pharisees for their sin and their hypocrisy? He does it in a bunch of other places. Um, <laughs> the problem with the, the woman caught in adultery is people want to figure out what he wrote in the sand. <laughs> that's the biggest part of the story. What was he writing? He was writing their sins. <laughs> He could have been writing what he was going to have for lunch. Who knows? It doesn't say. So it, we don't lose anything if we exclude that. Um, the man who wants to go down to the pool of Siloam and, and wash so that he's healed, does it have to be an angel that stirs the water? It may be. That might be at, historically accurate, but it doesn't really matter to the story because that's not how he got healed. Jesus healed him. Yeah, it turns it almost supernatural. Like, why would an angel go down and go, I'm going to stir the water. Oop. First one down wins. You know, it's just, it's, it's an odd story. The problem with Mark's longer ending, um, it's where the snake handlers get their snake handling from. Um, you will handle serpents and, and not be hurt. Um, we don't lose anything if we exclude the longer ending of Mark. So someday if I preach through it, if I end abruptly, you'll know why. <laughs> it's, I don't think that's really scripture. So, um, so all this kind of raises any, any more questions or discussions on that? There are other places where you get little minor minor differences. Uh, the word spelling, um, whether a word is feminine or, or neuter or something like that, there's little tiny differences, but nothing really huge. One of the most encouraging things when it comes to text, this is called textual criticism. That's what we're talking about is, is figuring out what the original text was. Um, a number of years ago, they found a scroll at the Dead Sea of the book of Isaiah, almost entirely complete. It was missing like one little portion of it had broken off. They translated it, or they, they, they got it out, they translated it, they, they looked at it, word for word, exactly the same as the book of Isaiah in our Bible, except for like two or three different spellings. It wasn't even different words, just different spellings. That was written sometime before Jesus. That's how accurate this stuff is. So it really is super trustworthy. It's not like you can't trust your Bible. Right? No, you don't hear the, the Muslims or the Mormons say, this part probably wasn't part of the Quran or the Book of Mormon. Well, Solomon Rushdie got in a bunch of trouble because he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. 
Um, there are scriptures that supposedly Muhammad wrote that the people who took over from him excluded from the Quran because it says stuff they didn't like. And so Solomon Rushdie brings this up and writes a book about the satanic verses. They're called the satanic verses. And so now there's a fatwa out to kill him. If you see him, you have to execute him if you're a good and faithful Muslim because he is impugning the, the Quran. But it's like, but dude, they were there. I mean, this is historical. You know, it's not it's not fake. Nobody gets upset about the longer ending of Mark. Nobody's going to get killed if they believe the longer ending of Mark. You know, you're going to be OK. So here's the other question is, how do we know which 66 books we have? And I have heard Roman Catholic apologists pull this on, on people. So you, you, you Christians, you believe in the Bible alone, right? Yes, we do. Okay. Show me the inspired list of the books of the Bible. Well, we don't have one. Well, then you don't have, then you don't believe in the Bible alone because you don't have a list of books in the Bible. And where they're getting this is from the Roman Catholic understanding of the doctrine of the canon. Canon is the rule. How many, how many books? What books are in there? So with Roman Catholicism, there is the church. The church is the authority. And so according to Roman Catholicism, the church has established the canon. The church says these are books are in, these books are out. That's why there's a Roman Catholic Bible that's different than ours, is because they include the Apocrypha in their Old Testament. So the church defines the canon. The, the canon describes the Bible. The Bible then gives the church authority, and round and round we go again. So how do you have authority? Because Jesus gave us authority. Where do you get that from? From the Bible. Okay, so your Bible that you established? Yes. Uh, this is not a helpful way to establish canon. This is how Protestants look at it. God wrote the Bible. God inspired people to sit down and write the Bible. That, because God inspired it, defines the canon. This is what is in and what is out is what God wrote. So how do we know? How do we know which books we should be trusting? Because the church eventually comes to hear clearly their master's voice in that Bible. You, you, you read the scriptures, and because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we hear it and we go, yeah, that's, that's scripture. I understand that. Um, I was driving to Albuquerque for a NCO um, leadership school graduation ceremony, and we stopped at a, a, a gas station, and I went in to get some coffee and something to eat, and they had a Mormon display and free books of Mormon and take one. <laughs> cool, okay. So I took it, and when we were driving, I started reading through it, and I went, man, I do not hear my master's voice in this. It, this is goofy. This is not scripture. I mean, I just could not hear it. So there's a book by a guy named Bruce Milne called uh, Handbook to Christian Belief, and I love the way he says it. He says, the Bible no more created the New Testament, I mean, the church no more created the New Testament canon than Isaac Newton created the law of gravity. In these writings and in these alone, the church heard and continues to hear the authentic tones of the Good Shepherd. We hear our master's voice in these words, and that's how we recognize canon. So in seminary, um, my professor was lecturing. He, he was talking like this, and somebody raised their hand, and they said, so could the canon be wrong? So could the 66 books we have be wrong? And the professor kind of looked at him. He says, well, yes, but it's not. 
It was because what he was trying to argue is he's trying to pull that Roman Catholic approach, which is if the canon can't be wrong, then there is an authority others outside the Bible that, that is equal to the Bible in authority. And so that, that's the problem. This is why we believe that the scriptures are what they are, is because we hear the master's voice in them. So Martin Luther took the Greek New Testament and began to translate a German Bible, and he hated the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. There's no gospel in the, the, the book of James. I think, if I can be fair to Luther, I think his problem was he was being beaten to death with it by the Roman Catholics because it says, James says, uh, you say that you're justified by faith? Great. Show me your faith. I'll show you my works. And so they were saying, see, you're not justified by faith alone. You're justified, justified by works. And so I think he was just really fed up with the book of James and didn't like it. He said, I would not include it in my Bible, but anybody who wants to, it's up to you. So he didn't hear his master's voice in the book of James, probably because there were people shouting over top of that and telling him he was wrong. Yes, sir. Did that change over the course of his Uh That's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I, th- I think he always didn't like it. Uh, he translated it, but he didn't care for it. He didn't think it was inspired. <laughs> Luther was very not, very much is not perfect. <laughs> the that one, yeah. So the scripture gives the church authority to establish the canon, which is the Bible, which gives them authority to establish. And around and around we go. Actually, what they would say is, "Poopa, this is not right. This is not what the Roman Church believes. We have the authority." Because we have the Pope. Because God told Peter, on this rock I will create, I will build my church. And therefore the church can announce what the canon is. I'm glad you called that back up, Jim. Here's the problem with the church announcing what the canon is. The church didn't announce the canon right away. The early church, before we became Protestant and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, when we were still one, we agreed on the New Testament canon. We did that together. It wasn't until after the Protestant Reformation, the Eastern Orthodox are now gone, Protestants have just split, and then Rome goes, okay, here's the Old Testament canon. So we don't get our Bible. If, any, if you ever have a Roman Catholic say that, you get your Bible from us. No, I don't. Your Bible contains books that are not inspired. The Apocrypha, yeah. Book of Tobit is one of the most bizarre things you've ever read. Tobit is a good and godly man, kind of along the lines of uh, Job. And uh, there's an angel who comes to Raphael, comes to help him. And um, for some reason, I forget why he goes blind. And so Raphael tells him, if you take the liver of a bird and take it outside and burn it and let the smoke get into your eyes, it'll cure you. And so he does, and scales fall out of his eyes. And now he can see. And I'm like, that's just weird. (laughs) That's, again, I don't hear my master's voice in that. That's just an odd story. Um, and then uh, there was a Roman Catholic church in, in uh, the place we lived called St. Raphael's. Like, all right, time out. Raphael was an angel. Angels are not saints. People are saints. And second of all, Raphael wasn't an angel. <laughs> he, was, he was fictitious. So, No, I'm glad you asked that question. The, so her question was, 
does it meet the criteria for for the canon that we talked about earlier? It was widely used by the church, um, uh, widely circulated and useful. The Old Testament canon is different because the Apocrypha includes it's based on the Greek version of the Old Testament, which includes these other book writings, these intertestamental writings. The New Testament will often quote the Septuagint, the Greek version. So you could say that because the New Testament quotes it, it must be authoritative. Well, yes, but they don't ever quote any of the apocryphal books. So I mentioned Enoch earlier is, is in Jude. That's not in the Apocrypha. That's pseudopigraphilia, is, is, is felt false writings. Um, so that's even farther out. So could the uh, Greek Old Testament have been considered inspired? Yeah, it could have because the apostles used it. Jesus quoted from it. Well, at least the authors of the New Testament were familiar with it and quoted from it. But when you get to the apocryphal stuff, you go, I just don't hear my master's voice in there. And when we talk about the doctrine of purgatory, so in Roman Catholic theology, um, if you die and you still have any sin on you, if you're still guilty of any sin, then you go to a place called purgatory where they purge your sins off. So you're in purgatory and you're suffering and you're burning and you're paying for the sins that remain. And then when you have been there long enough and suffered enough for all of those, those sins that remain, then you get out and you go to heaven. And so what the Pope can do, the Pope has what he calls a treasury of, um, of righteousness, the, the righteousness, the excess righteousness of the saints. So the saints who, who died and immediately went to heaven, some of them had excess righteousness, especially Mary, because she was just perfect. And so he's got a big chest full of this. And so he can do things like let people out of purgatory. So if you will do this certain thing, he can grant you an indulgence. And an indulgence says, I'll shave this many years off your sentence in purgatory. Martin Luther said, if the Pope can do that and he doesn't release everybody now, he's evil. That's just wrong that you would hold. You have the authority to release everybody from purgatory and you don't do it. That's just evil. Where do they get this idea? Where, where, that's nowhere in the Bible. Where it comes from is, is Maccabees. Maccabees is a historical uh, document in the, um, the, the Apocrypha that talks about the revolt at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's talking about how the, the, the um, Jews threw them off. And in there it says that they prayed for the dead. And so that's the proof text that Rome uses is you can pray for the dead because they need to get out of purgatory and you can pray them into heaven. Um, so how do I know? So I remember Lisa and I, when we got married, we asked the priest, so how do I know when to stop praying for my dad or her mom? And he went, wow, that's a good question. I don't know, just keep praying. <laughs> because that's excess, that's extra righteousness, and it'll be accredited to somebody else's account, I guess. I'm like, you guys are terrible bookkeepers. <laughs> this is horrible. So, yeah, that's, that's the problem with including apocryphal works, is you can wind up with some really wonky doctrines. Um, or at least justification form. So let's see what else did we have. We got that. Um, I had a couple of quotes from a couple of different authors. Let me just uh, end with this one from F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he's a uh, he was a really great New Testament um, uh, scholar, and he's talking about the canon of Scripture. And this is how he explains the canon of Scripture: the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. 
On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. Recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. Now, what, they, what he means by direct, um, apostolic authority, direct or indirect, that was another criteria for including in the scriptures, is they had to be apostolic. And what about Mark? Mark was not apostle. Well, the theory is Mark was associated, closely associated with Peter. And so he's writing under Peter's authority. Or Jude, what about the book of Jude? Well, that would have come from one of the other apostles' authority, but that was the idea. So that's what, what um, Bruce means by apostolic authority, direct or indirect, is that there was an apostle involved in some way. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa, at Hippo Regis in 393 and at Carthage in 397. But what those councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. So that's what we mean by the scriptures were already being passed around. They were already recognized as authoritative. The problem was at about this time in the, in the fourth century, late third, early fourth century, was these heretics showed up called the Gnostics. And that comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. And the Gnostics think, thought that, well, think, because they're still around, think that they have this secret hidden knowledge that God has revealed to them, and so they can explain this. And so they would write the, the Gospel of Thomas, and they would put these, these New Testament names on these things, the Apocrypha, or the Apocalypse of uh, Mary, um, uh, the, the Epistle of Barnabas, these kind of things. But when you read them, they make your head spin because they're just nonsense. It's this secret hidden knowledge they have. Um, the Gospel of, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas, talks about Jesus when he was a little boy in Egypt. And he was playing on the, on the beach, and he made um, some birds out of clay and then gave them life, and they flew away. Like, okay. <laughs> That's just weird. Why would he do that? That's odd. Um, so since these books were beginning to circulate and were confusing people because, wait, this is, this is by Thomas? This is, this is cool. Um, the church came out and said, no, we need to isolate this list. We need to nail it down. So that's why in the uh, late 4th century they, they said, here is the canon of the New Testament. And so there were books that they debated that went back and forth on. The book of Revelation almost didn't make it. It was too hard to understand. Um, what was the other one? There was another one that uh, Hebrews was kind of in and out, kind of came and went for a while. Uh, like I mentioned, the Didache, they almost included that and then eventually threw it out. And then there's another one called the Shepherd of Hermes that almost wound up in there. And then they went, no, it's, it's already covered in other things. And so the ones that we know of, we'll stick with those. Probably. Hmm. I didn't know that. I never heard of that one almost making it. I've got a book on my bookshelf called The Lost Books of the Bible. They're not the lost books of the Bible. The Bible didn't lose any books. <laughs> they are, huh? what's that? The lost books of the almost. The almost books of the Bible. Um, I took a class in, uh, in my undergraduate program. I took it, it was on the New Testament, and we never touched the New Testament. We read Elaine Pagel's The Gnostic Gospels. It was a book where she's explaining how the Gnostics were the true church and the, the Orthodox threw them out. And, uh, yeah, there's no reason to believe any of that. So 
want to end with the so what question. So we've got an inspired Bible. We've got a canon of scripture. God speaks through revelation or through general revelation, through what's created, through our conscience, through the way we're made. We'll talk imago Dei. We'll talk about how we are the image of God. He's spoken through the scriptures to us. The scriptures are about uh, Jesus. So, so what about that? Why does this help us? Why is this useful? It's useful because if we just went with verbal tradition, that changes over time. People, you, you, it's, have you ever played the old telephone game? Did that in third grade or fifth grade, fourth grade, where you said a thing and passed it around, and by the time it got to the end, it was completely different. That's why we can't trust verbal history. Is it, it, it gets modified. Language changes. If you just do it around a classroom, the language doesn't change. If you do it over the centuries, language changes. So it's important that we have something solid that we can point at and go, yeah, this is the word of God. And God blessed the Jews. They were really finicky about their Bible. When you go through and you're looking at how they, they, they uh, copied the Bible, there are markers in the, in the Hebrew text. They're not in the, the sacred letters are sacred. They won't touch them, but they'll put markers. And there's a marker that says this is the midpoint of the book. So from this point on, if you count the letters to this point, there is an equal number of letters going to the end of the book. They'll, they'll mark it out and say, here's the end of the paragraph. That's not inspired. It's, it's, it's part of the Masoretes writing it down. They were so picky, they could get through almost the entire book, get down to the last three words, make a mistake, and burn the scroll and start over again. And that tradition carried on into the Christians. The Christian church, although they believed Jesus was coming back at any moment, were extremely picky about their, their copies. And they kept really tight records, and they were very, very finicky about it. That means it comes down to us that way. We have an extraordinarily reliable Bible. So when you sit down and do your Bible study in the morning, you can listen to Peter tell you something and hear God's voice in that as well. And you can be sure that's what he's saying. And then the question about or, uh, translation, we're going we're gonna to retranslate it. There'll be another new translation in another 15, 20 years because language will have changed again. And, and we have to write it in different languages for people around the planet, too. But everybody goes back to the Greek text and says, this is what God originally said. Let's translate from here. Not, well, you know, um, this guy was pretty cool. Let's just go with how he did it. You know, we're, we're going back to the text. It's the, the Latin phrase is ad fonts, back to the original. And so this is why the scriptures are so beautiful to us is because they're inspired. They're God's word. Are they, oh, that's one I should have put up there, God's love letter to us. Is the Bible God's love letter to us? <laughs> I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> God getting all mushy about us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I'm going to have to put that in there is God's love letter to us. It's like, no, that makes me a little uneasy. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. The basic instructions before leaving earth is another one I hear all the time, too. But that's not what the Bible is. And what's so glorious is think about the, the span of how many years and how many authors wrote the Bible. I calculated one time it came up to about twenty three hundred years and about I think it was 50 something authors wrote the Bible and go through. And there's one story from beginning to end. 
that can't be human. That can't be people doing that because somewhere along the line, culture is so different, it's going to change, it's going to shift, language changes. We go Greek or Hebrew and then we hit some Aramaic and then we go into Greek. And yet there's one story that can only be because there's one author, right? God wrote that. The, the concept there is called the analogy of faith. And what they're talking about is not speaking in weird ways about our faith. It's saying the scripture has one story, has one author. So you can read something in the Old Testament and then read something in the New Testament and say they're in harmony. They're not in conflict. That, that's why I, that's the so what for this is it's just so beautiful that God left us this because he knew we'd be around for a while. <laughs> and he said, Here's, here, church, this is your instructions. This is, this is what you need to know. Jesus is your savior. He, he's taking care of all of it. So right now I'm going through, I'm finishing Exodus. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to read one more time about the temple and what they built and how they built it and how many hooks there were to hang up the curtains and stuff. Like, Lord, why is this inspired? But you know what? It is. And, and in some way, the Holy Spirit will use it. And they, the, the Jews were so good, they were so picky to make sure they got those letters exactly right. It's, it's just incredible, even if it's not cool, you know? It's just beautiful to me. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think that, that's how the Bible style got. That's how precise got it. Right almost down to the molecule. Mm-hmm. Every little thing in that temple. A marvel. Uh, um, but on your other comment, uh, the official thing that's been out for a long time, the Bible is so it's about it's 40 authors over about 1,500 years. Was it 1,500? Uh, I couldn't remember. I, I calculated it one time, but even if it, yeah, even if it's the less of the two, it's still incredible. It's still wild that that's yeah. the common theme between all of that. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing. <laughs>